I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in on this episode of the Hornady Podcast. As always, Seth Swerzik, your host, and joining me to my left, senior ballistician Jaden Quinlan. Jaden, thanks for coming on. Yep, absolutely. Well, I, you're you're very needed in this podcast, and you know the ballistic study of podcasts that we've been doing mm-hmm. has just been immensely popular. Yeah, a lot of good feedback, a lot of questions, a lot of people looking at things differently, mm-hmm. and it's it's all been good. And we've got a guest on the show that paramount in in a lot of things that you that you've done and instrumental in a lot of our ballistic understanding Mm -hmm. and uh yeah i'm excited to to get into this one because it now it transcends more than just our kind of what i'm going to say technical advisor into uh you know a book and a whole bunch of cool stories so Jaden, if you would yeah please introduce our guest to the show okay thank you yeah so our guest is uh jeff seward so i think everybody probably has like a guy they call you know, you, you have a problem with something, right? You got a guy you can call. Yeah. Uh, Jeff has been that guy for me for many years, um, as well as Dave Emery, right? You know, Dave Emery was the senior ballistician here for a very long time, and I worked with Dave Emery for, for many years, which is how I met Jeff originally. Um, probably would have been like 2012 or 13 time frame. Somewhere in there. Yeah, you came out and you taught a class. Uh, we used some software uh, from a company that Jeff used to work for, and he came out to teach kind of a an advanced user version of that class. Mm-hmm. And during that class, I kind of picked up on the fact that, you know, uh, he probably has a passion for ballistics. He's got to fire kind of like I've got to fire. And so we kind of just naturally, I think, connected on that level. And for years, you know, I've ran stuff past Jeff, and he's helped me uh, a ton. Um, I think we'll talk about his book a little bit, which helped me a lot. I know you read it. Oh my it. gosh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. To, to, yeah, diverge quickly into his book and then we'll talk about it more in depth. But for me, uh, as my career progressed through Hornady doing, you know, the technical services stuff and, and kind of like you mentioned with Jeff that you had that, that, that passion for ballistics and why and how mm-hmm. and everything works. And I kind of had that too, only at a much more rudimentary level. And with Dave Emery's retirement from Hornady, you needed some help in the lab. And so I got to transition mm-hmm. uh, to, to dabble in that ballistics field. And from a complete novice standpoint, there's a lot you can learn on the job. And when I got that digital copy of what turned out to be Ammunition Demystified, it was, there was so many answers in there. I had to read it several times over. There was a, a particular chapter in there that was well over my head that I read. I don't even know how many times. It was talking about case geometry and radial hoop strength and and yeah, the nonlinear way that things expand. And that was like way over my head. But throughout that book, there were so many things that were technical in nature, complex in nature that were digestible that I was able to go, okay, okay. now I can connect some dots. And mm-hmm. it really made my job easier to do because I was understanding things at a more complex level. And the book, although there is a lot of complexity to it, it it was in a way that I could understand it and it was helpful and it was almost, you could use it as a resource, almost as like a, like a textbook, if you will, but it I didn't still read do like to that. this day. Yeah. I still, I'll go back and reference the book. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. so, I need to jump on uh, Amazon and get the paperback version because I've still got just the original one. Yeah. It, it existed as a, as a, like an ebook, right? Right. And, right. And, and for a long time and now finally it's in print, which is great. Yeah. Well, it was again, paramount to 
help me understand some stuff. But yeah, let's let's uh, kick it over to Jeff here and yeah. talk about who knows what. Well, first, thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to talk a little bit about the book and some of the experiences I've had over many years as a as a ballistics engineer. Um, what what did your career look like, Jeff? Because you you've got you know you've you've dabbled in the small cow world a lot, right? That's what we do here at Hornady. Most of our listeners are going to be familiar with small cow, right? Shoulder fired rifle or handgun or stuff like that. But you've done it all. You've done small cow, large cow, everything. I mean, kind of give us an overview of your career. Yeah. So I started. I started um, uh, 1977. Graduated college. Woke up five weeks later. My butt was in Saudi Arabia. I spent 18 months over there. Uh, working with the Saudi National Guard, um, did a little bit of ballistics work over there. We had some questions about whether or not the ammunition had the muzzle velocity we, we thought it should have. Um, got back from there and started looking around for a job. And what popped up was a, a job in the ammo group. And it was like, well, I'll do this until it's not fun anymore. Mm-hmm. And I never left. <laughs> so what did you major in in college? To- I was a physics major. Okay. Physics yep. major. That explains a little bit. Yeah. And um, so at, at GE in Burlington, Vermont, I was, I was in the ammo group and I got to work on a pile of, you know, really interesting things. Uh, case telescope ammunition, 20 millimeter. Mm-hmm. I was, I was kind of the Johnny on the spot for that, for a good chunk of it anyway. Um, some high velocity test fixture work. We're pushing, you know, 300 gram, not grain, gram, gram. projectiles out at over 5,500 feet per second. Wow. Oh, we do that all the time around here. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. We've got yeah the electromagnetic railgun. Worked worked on worked on the uh, M774 fuse development that's currently in the uh, 120 millimeter M830A1. Um. Worked on a pile of different things. And, you know, like most guys, after a while, it's like, well, what else is out there? What, what other mountains are there to conquer? And so my boss had left a few years prior and started his own little company. And uh, I st- stuck my hand up and said, yeah, if you're looking for folks, I'll, I'll, I'll join you. And I did. And it was, it was kind of a no-brainer, you know, just move down the street, and same benefits, better pay. What's not to like? Yeah, win, win. What's yeah. not to like, right? So for 30 plus years, and there I worked on, it was, like you said, everything from soup to nuts. In my career, I worked on everything from 17 caliber air rifle pellets up to 8-inch howitzer and almost everything in between. Worked on rockets, worked on all kinds of different things. Wow. And you say worked on... From a projectile standpoint, propellant, all things. The whole smash. Oh, the, about the gosh. only thing I didn't get involved with was um, primers. Wow. The, you know, so worked on cartridge cases, case chamber interaction, worked uh, balloting simulations, you know, the dynamic interaction of a flexible projectile and a flexible gun tube. And a lot of what we've learned over the past, I'm going to say, decade or so comes from some of that work that was done for a customer looking at uh, targeting pr- problems in a gatling gun wow so it's it's been it's been really a interesting interesting career and am i sad to see it go yeah in some in some ways and but i'm still i've still got my finger and i'm working i'm working a couple of small jobs right now so sure even though i'm quote retired yeah yeah you're still in the game 
<clears throat> yeah, yeah, well, and that kind of knowledge that you get, you know, from the formal education and then just the decades worth of experience in propellants and design. And I, I would like to say that I have had some just wonderful, wonderful mentors over the years. Sure. Bob White, uh, Wayne Hathaway, Alan Hathaway, brother, um, John Burnett, Bud Stearns, some really wonderful and and talented people, you know, that... It's one thing to know something and be able to just spout it out, but mm-hmm. having the patience to take the time to explain it to somebody, that's kind of a rare, a rare talent, I think. And um, I'm, I'm very grateful for having had that opportunity. The book is my attempt at doing the same thing mm-hmm. without having to sit over somebody's shoulder. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Well, you know, you, you describe how interesting all that work was in that career field, but to take some words from you from back in the day, uh, I'm, I'm like trying to pull something out of him here. Aren't bull- bullets just like little lumps of metal? Like, yeah. So that that was actually a comment from a very good friend. He's the she's the wife of a guy who is our our best man. And when I told her that I was going to do have a job in ballistics, mm-hmm. that was that was her question, and and she's not wrong. She's not yeah, wrong. Kind of she's not wrong. No, no. I mean, <laughs> if if you if you if you're just you know an outsider, you know, staring out, staring outside, you know, standing outside, looking in, um, that's what it looks like, you know. But if you treat them like little lumps of metal and you don't know any more about them, then the the road to goodness is long and may not end in success. So, you know, it's it's you have to really dig deeper. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you tell somebody, oh, there's there's three forces acting on the projectile in four moments. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? I didn't know when I started. Right. So, I mean, it, projectile flight is, is just one facet of a very complex subject. Yeah. Well, especially when you get into your depth of work, that it's not just the lump of metal flying. It's the interaction of the case and the propellant and the primer and that ignition cycle and the barrel and the chamber. And, like and it's, and it's really the interaction part where the rubber meets the road. I mean, okay, the bullets, the bullets somehow left the barrel. Did you leave the cartridge case behind in one piece? Did you burn all the powder out? I mean, there are a whole, whole pile of things that you really should be worrying about if, if, um, if you're on top of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we, you know, like you said in that that kind of ballistic study we've done, we've, <clears throat> we've definitely covered some topics, um, but there's some that we haven't even touched on, but are common out there. Yeah. And Jeff, I know, you know, you'd be a great one to get your opinion on with your experience in this stuff. So like a common one that people think of is the, is the, the brush bucking, like oh. I'm going to be hunting in a heavy timber. Yeah. Yeah. And I want something that's just going to be able to Plow smash through. right through something and hit right where I aimed. I mean, yeah. What, what's your take on that from your experience? Well, it, it, it's actually covered in the book. Um, <clears throat> so we, once upon a time had, uh, an experience with a customer who was building 120 millimeter tank long rods. These rods are over two feet long. They're made out of heavy metal. They're about an inch in diameter and they're cruising along at over 5,000 feet per second. So the test protocol for that particular cartridge they have fly-through targets at one kilometer and two kilometer, and at three kilometers, that's where you get paid. So you have to have 10 
shots out of 10 fired in the target, and they all have to be within a certain size. Okay, wonderful. Well, they fired 10 shots, and there's nine, or there's 10, 10 imprints in the first target, 10 imprints in the second, and in the third, there's nine, there's nine imprints. Like, what the heck happened? So this would be roughly the equivalent of having a rifle that you could pile 10 shots into an inch extreme spread at 100 yards, and all of a sudden, you get a 14-inch flyer. What the heck happened? Mm-hmm. How did that? How did that happen? So we started making some numbers, and we just started asking questions of the test group. Is it possible that there was a rock stuck to the target? Oh yes, 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 absolutely. We had their cheesecloth. They called them cheesecloth. That's it's kind of woven fiberglass. They would lay them down in the dirt. And stand them up. Boresight on the three-kilometer target, get the right drop, right? It's not much drop, but there is some. <laughs> and, then they, and then they stand them up and they fire through them. And so we said, well, what would happen if there was a you know, three-quarter-inch diameter rock stuck to the first target? What sort, of num- what sort of flight path deviation would we get from that? We, you know, in very short order had kind of an estimate for how much force was applied for how long and where on the body of the projectile it would you know be right at the nose and we have computer codes that can tell us from a trajectory standpoint what sort of flight path deviation there would be and it's like man that looks about right and the customer said well that's really nice can you can you come with us when we talk to the customer about this sure and we did and the customer said, we'll buy the lot of ammo, but we better not hear that excuse again. <laughs> so from my perspective, if, if, a, if a nine pound long rod moving 5,000 feet per second can't fight off a crummy little rock, what chance do you have of bucking any brush with any rifle cartridge? I just, I mean, can you get lucky? Sure you can, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't. I wouldn't be taking the shot purposely to try to hit a branch and 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 count on it going where I want it to go. Yeah, it just. I've 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 seen I've seen too many shots deflected from that from that standpoint. So, I pick a spot, thread thread the needle. Yeah, thread yeah. the needle. That's that's the way to that's the road to success in my book. You heard it here. Bucking brush is a fallacy. Yeah, I don't care if it's a thirty thirty with a hundred and seventy grain round nose. Yeah, you can get it to work. I think that is important is to acknowledge the, you know that uh, that idea exists for a reason, right? Uh, people have been successful in doing it. They've shot through brush and and killed the buck just fine. Um, but to your point, Jeff. There's more going on than you think. Yeah. You know, just because you did it once doesn't mean it's the absolute. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be doing a test probably next summer on that particular topic. I have some Hornady 170 grain 30 cal flat noses around. Yeah. From when I first started reloading 30 some, 38 oh, yeah. years ago. Those are the good ones. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to be doing a test and looking at how far does the different bullets deflect if you, if you, I have to run them through a piece of, I'm going to use plywood, I think. Mm, yeah. Some sort of plywood or, or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, anyway. Oracle um, board or something. 
something like that. I want something consistent. So sure. we'll uh, we'll just do the test and see what happens. Yeah. yeah. He's still at it. He's, yeah. he's retired. Yeah. Well, he's I, you know, and I'll put it on my website. Okay. What's your website? It's www.bulletology.com. There's a pile of good information there, um, okay. and it's there for the for any anybody who's inclined to read through it and take away what they will. Yeah, I've I've referenced it. You know, we get um, we get people that reach out like they hear the the technical podcast stuff, and they're that's in you know in alignment with their interests, and they want to learn more or consume more, and so mm-hmm. they reach out to us and say, "Hey, do you guys have any other references you'd recommend reading or looking at or whatever?" And and um, some of the questions I've answered there, I've sent them. You know, hey, you're the specific interest you have. That's a perfect spot for it. So there's yeah. a lot of good stuff on there. Well, and there's there's few publications out there that would have this broad, but also this complex level of information. Mm-hmm. I can't think of really. I mean, I think of one rather. Yeah. Uh, that that would be this all encompassing and in depth. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So yeah, definitely check that out. And Bulletology. B u l l e t o l o g y. That's correct. Bulletology.com. That's the name of the business, so that's that's okay. the name of the website. So. Excellent. Well, I've, I've been there before. I know Jaden sent that article right as you guys got it up uh, online, and I checked it out. And yeah, there's tons of just yeah little articles that you can read about different specific topics. That's yeah, yeah, if yeah. You're doing some it covers, research covers covers a lot of different things. Yeah. Well, another topic that we we have covered in the past is uh, kind of the. The transonic instability gremlins that I talk about. Oh my gosh! Know, everybody talks about <clears throat> that. It. Everybody blames when they miss a you know target if it's if it's, it's uh, fifteen hundred yards away. It's unstable. Yeah, I missed because <laughs> of the transonic gremlins or whatever it is. But um, you know, Jeff, I know you have a, a very interesting take, and in, in your experience being different than mine, you can explain that in a in a different way. So um, maybe yeah. give us some insight there. Yeah. So there are two types of of stability first is gyroscopic stability do you have enough spin to keep the pointy nose forward i think you've covered it on previous podcasts mm-hmm. um that's a necessary prerequisite for the second type which is dynamics but dynamic stability and that is a matter of is is any bullet yaw going to decrease as the bullet goes down range if if that's the case the bullet is said to be dynamically stable so when bullets come out of the gun initially, there's a little bit of wobble. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, that's, that's an unstable bullet. That's not the case. Those bullets are stable. As they go down range, does the, does, the, does the magnitude of that wobble damp? Does it get smaller? If, it, if the answer is yes, that bullet is dynamically stable. What happens when you do the, the transonic transition is... Um, change in the magnus moment from the magnus force center pressure moving afterward tends to destabilize the bullet and what happens is the bullet will will, will just fly with a persistent non-zero angle of attack and that's called a dynamic instability and it's what happens to one bullet is going to happen to the next bullet to within a very small margin of error so if you're if the bullet flies with let's pick a number three degrees angle of attack it'll be three plus or minus a couple tenths of a degree so so one bullet to the next bullet to the next bullet you should have very consistent performance Mm. okay so that's that's against the grain from uh popular shooting culture well so so that can interact with differences in crosswinds sure okay Mm. so so there yeah there are 
lots of things that can go on. One of the things that we cover in the book that I hope people who read it take away is the notion of an error budget. Mm. There's this much error from that from this source, this much from you know barrel, this much from bullet, this much from muzzle velocity, this much from drag. All of those all of those things cause the groups to open up. The nice part about the error budget, you can hang numbers on each of the factors and figure out which one's causing you the most grief and attack that one. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the one of the things in the book that I hope readers will use and take away and and apply to their particular problems. Yeah, for sure. It's a very useful concept. I think people will. Um, We apply it a lot. You know, even in a, even when we're designing something new, say we're coming out with a new cartridge like 7PRC, you know, when that thing was in its infancy, when it was an idea in Seth's head, uh, we we look at things from that perspective. You know, what do we think this cartridge is going to produce for those different metrics for muzzle velocity and the variability? for the bullet class that it's going to have. What's the drag variability going to be like in that and the raw drag and mm-hmm. all those things. And then we can kind of see a problem coming before, before we spend all that time and money and investment in mm-hmm. actually going, making them, testing them and discovering that. Right. Yep. So taking that aspect can kind of back to what we've covered in prior podcasts of that stuff can save you money. Right. If you, if you don't have to just go experience failure after failure after failure, if you can take kind of an analytical approach to it and, if you understand how it works, you can then do that mm-hmm. and look at it in a way where you can, like you said, Jeff, pick out those problems before you have to discover them, you know, in the field, especially. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why a lot of, uh, backyard ballisticians, if you will, when to speak to your point about the seven PRC, when the seven PRC came out, there's a lot of, a lot of uproar and still is. Why didn't you just neck down the 300? I want all the velocity. Right. It's not how sens- internal ballistic works. If you sensibly <laughs> approach it, you can avoid problems. Yeah. 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 Very true. And yeah, just talking about that example right there, just your level of understanding of, 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 uh, of the topics at hand. In this case, I was going to mention stability, the different types of stability, the way that you can convey that in such a easy to understand conversational manner, everybody can digest that. Because up until Jaden explained it to me, however many years ago, which he probably mm-hmm. skimmed from you, yeah, I had it. He was trying to find something on the internet that helped me understand it. And, yeah, and this this brings these topics to a much larger group of people because now you're not glossing over. Right, and and the, the I mean, people say, "Oh, it's unstable." Does that mean it's going end over end? The answer is no, and nor will it. Nor will it. You know, I I got on a Facebook. Facebook bladder capacity contest with uh, with a guy <laughs> a, a few years ago and and oh yeah the bullet's unstable and he's got bullets sideways in the target and it's like you know looking at the size of the group it's like you're, you're firing you're firing too long a bullet for too slow a twist you can't fool me yeah you know it's like and he shut up that was the end of that <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a question you said you've been reloading for thirty ish years yeah. Yeah. So in the in that unique experience you've had, say in in doing the large cow work or the long rod work or whatever, was there things that you learned in that kind of alien world? Right. That's kind of an alien world from the perspective yeah. of small cow stuff. Yeah. It's not shoulder fired. There, I'm not looking through a scope or iron sights. You know, was there things that you learned there that you applied to those early days of reloading? I'm, I, I'm 
I'm so glad you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> so early on, I mean, you know, Malcolm Gladwell says you have to have uh, 10,000 hours to be an expert at something. I was just about five years in 10,000 hours into my career as a ballistics engineer. And we got uh, an opportunity to build some ammunition in 30 millimeter for a barrel erosion test. The boss from someplace had managed to scarf some high flame temperature propellant, but it was 155 millimeter. Oh, that's going to be too slow for our application. So what do we do? We mixed it. Something they tell you, don't try this at home. Yeah. yeah. Leave right. it to the professionals. Yeah. Or so, the semi-professionals. Well, so so even at that, even at that, there. I mean, and that's, we'll get to it eventually, but um, the the approach was let's let's mix this with some ball powder to you know something that's that's quicker real higher much higher relative quickness to get that fast that hot stuff burning even though it's the wrong quickness and if it blows out the end of the tube we're kind of okay with that um and so that's that's what we did you know we took uh, we took a steel case 30 millimeter which is not standard these days 30 by 173 is aluminum case anyways we were using a steel case spray i what i did was i actually sprayed some rubber cement inside the cartridge case to act as an adhesive to keep the ball powder in place poured in a small a small quantity say 50 grams of the 155 propellant sprayed in some more rubber cement Put in the rest of the the 155 powder. Added in another 50 grams. So we're talking, you know, a case that normally holds 150 grams of propellant. I got 170 something grams in there. It's like, you know, there are people looking at this hybrid type trade name mm-hmm. propellant, and that's one of the things that can be done. If you need more energy in the case, you you can do that. Um, at any rate. We, everything was fine until we started crimping the cartridge case. Doubled the pressure. Oops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> first time we did that, first time we did that, we had to have the barrel sent back to the shop, have the case machined out, and we started over. This time, crimping every shot before we, before we pulled the trigger on it. So, there, yeah, there, the war stories are in the book for entertainment purposes and to give people the idea that it doesn't matter how big an expert you are, you can run into stuff that you had not thought about or hadn't anticipated, and it might not end well for you. <laughs> yeah. So, well, yeah, when you're doubling pressure. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, it was just like that quick, yeah. that quick. You went, went from uncrimped at 60,000 PSI to crimped at 120. Wow. Well, well that's, that's, that's what the transducer said before it crapped out. Yeah. No wonder it's hard to pull that case out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of war stories, uh, I mean, there's been a couple given. Maybe tell us a couple of your favorites or those that kind of pertain to the yeah. the small cow world, since that's most of our audience. Yeah. Or before you get there, you mentioned that they're in the book. So uh, just for the listener, within the book, I think it's every chapter, you have a war story about the chapter. Almost, almost every chapter has its own associated war stories. Some of them have two. Okay. Yeah. Where so, you really learned some lessons. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so I mean, you know, the high velocity test fixtures has a war story, you know, regarding a, a guy who, um, who, pretty good engineer, but he, 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 for some reason, hadn't occurred to him that cartridge case could get pushed above its elastic limit during firing, and almost all cartridge cases are stressed above their elastic limit. That's why we have to resize them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So this was a custom-made brass cartridge case, and his comment to us was, oh, you know, because because it has a you know, lower modulus of elasticity than steel, I don't have to worry about the case getting stuck. I don't think that's right, but okay. <laughs> you know, and he wasn't part of the ammo group, and he just went off and did his thing, and, you know, a uh, half dozen shots later, he's creeping up on, on pressure, and, case got stuck and this is a case that would hold three quarters of a pound of powder oh big yeah big case big case yeah so they they had to bring it bring the barrel back to the shop and they had to turn the case out and we started over or he started over yeah so yeah there are all kinds of crazy tests that have been done i did a sticker test in our for artillery what's a sticker yeah i was gonna say what's a sticker a sticker is where you put the cart, put the bullet. Now, artillery is a little different than small arms in that you cram the bullet in separately. There's no cartridge case. There's just a bag of powder that you load into the chamber. And you fire it, and the powder burns, and away goes the bullet. Well, the other thing that artillery does is they, they do what they call zoning. They, they load less powder in to change the velocity so that the angle of fall provides the smallest impact footprint at the target. So if you're less than max, max, max range, you can pick a particular muzzle velocity that gives you the best on-target effects. Perfect, right? Yeah. Well, the first job was, what's the, what are the, what are the we had to de- determine... What's the probability of sticking a bullet in the tube at top zone? We don't know. Well, now we got to go do a test. And so it was a binary search, you know, cut the powder in half, fire it. Did it exit the tube? Yeah, well, cut it in half again. And keep doing that until the bullet no longer exits the tube. Um, worn barrel is going to be different than a new barrel. We tested both. We tested. We didn't. We did not test an end of life barrel. But um, uh, yeah, basically, you would stick the barrel in the tube, burn all the powder, and the bullets not not didn't exit the tube. Like okay, so so now we got to clear the tube somehow, and it turns out there's a procedure for that. Basically, they slide a lever. The primer comes squirting out the back. It looks kind of like a 4570 cartridge case. It's actually a little bit bigger than that, but same idea. Um, let the gas blow down. You need to be out of the way when you pull a lever. <laughs> <laughs> Open the breech, put in what they call the clearing charge, which was a t- uh, kind of a, a zone four, a zone five charge. Fire it, clear the, clear the bullet out of the tube, and start over. You know... It's just amazing how far you can, if you're standing behind the gun, they pull the trigger on a 155 or an 8-inch howitzer, how far you can see that bullet. You can see it to a count of three. Wow. It's, it's just astonishing. 
it's you can see that bullet for an awfully long way. You know, there are a pile of other fun things that I did over the years. Um, <clears throat> from a small cal perspective, I think the first one I got involved with was looking at the aerodynamics of um, wasp-wasted shotgun slug. I think you know what I'm talking about. Yes. It's a piece of lead with a piece of plastic crammed up the skirt on the back end. And uh, we, we ran a Yacard test. We didn't learn a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not so good for the customer, but, you know, it, it, basically what that told us was this thing is not statically stable. You know, it's not gyroscopically stable. How does it work? How much money do you have to go chase that? <laughs> so, so for the listener, when he says yaw cards, that test is essentially if you could envision, say, a bunch of sheets of cardboard back to back to back to back with gaps in between them, and you fire through that, and you're you know you're measuring the projectile's orientation at different uh, distances in its flight, and you can kind of get some some idea of what it's doing. That's what that test is. There are there are pictures of a yaw card setup on my website. Yeah. So, yeah, people can go go have a look at that. But yeah, it's 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 a way to extract pitching moment, which is a key factor in gyroscopic stability and in dispersion. So, um, it's it's a fairly simple and inexpensive test to conduct, and I I'm I'm a little bit surprised it doesn't get more use. Yeah, mm. as simple as it is, and available it is, is sure. as it is to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Can you? Uh, one of one of my favorite, I guess, kind of war stories is um, the twenty two cal stuff, where the dispersion went nonlinear. Can you tell that one a little bit? I I I can. I we're not going to mention the customer. Sure, just generalities in, in yeah. So aerodynamic. Yeah, yeah. So so what happened was we were we were approached. This is over a decade ago by by a customer who was working on a, a non toxic twenty two rim fire projectile, and they said this is a really really bizarre behavior we've never seen it before, and it turned out we'd never seen it before either. Uh, ba- basically, what would happen was the bullet would shoot, you know, two inch groups at fifty yards, and by the time it went out to a hundred yards, the groups were three feet in diameter. Mm-hmm. It was just amazing. I'd never, I'd never seen dispersion nonlinear to that degree before. I'm like something strange must be happening here, and we had to figure out what the something strange is. And so what I did was, <clears throat> I went and looked through the library of uh, different projectile shapes. I found one that was kind of close, and modeled it in the projectile design software and and took the results from that corrected for what was measured and then ran this bullet that we were working on through it and what i found out was that at high velocity when you launch it say from a rifle particularly that bullet would start off with a center of pressure after the center of gravity, which is something that should never happen for a spin-stabilized bullet. It's kind of okay if you're talking badminton birdies mm. <laughs> or, or air rifle pellets, but it's something that should not happen for, for spin-stabilized projectiles. 
So as the bullet traveled downrange, it would slow down, and the, the center of pressure location is a function of the velocity of the bullet. And at some point during this flight to 100 yards, the center of pressure and the center of gravity became coincident, which means the bullet had infinite gyroscopic stability, and the bullet would pick a direction and fly off into who knows where. Yeah. Okay. So, like, all right. Now we've got now we've got a handle on what we think is going on. What's the fix? The fix was to make the bullet a bit longer, about about a half a caliber longer. So another hundred thousandths longer. They built some. They fired them. It, it was it was no problem. It, it was it was exactly what we wanted to happen. And so, like, did did they did they go did they decide to go forward with the longer bullet? The answer, sadly, is no, because it was no longer the fastest rimfire oh. bullet out there. So marketing marketing kind of drove the bus there. No no offense intended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> None taken because uh, yeah yeah. So I, I work for the department, but I know very yeah, little. Yeah, yeah. So you've been on so, both sides too. Yeah. So. yeah so so the the bullet the bullet we understood what was happening with the bullet but we we couldn't get couldn't convince the marketeers to hey let us let us explore this a little more and we'll we'll get you something that shoots past 50 yards yeah and they said nah, we're good okay whatever hey as yeah. long as you're paying me it's fine <laughs> yeah the computational power and the resources that you had to to investigate though that that's incredible yeah that's nuts, you know, that, that that's a real job, that this technology exists in the world and that, you know, these people are available to do this. Yeah. That's, that, that is it, so it's, cool. It's, um, well, it's the people with the background. It's the test data that's available. Can you apply it? Yeah. And, and from that perspective, I was, I was exceedingly fortunate. Well, that, that story is uniquely, I think, cool uh, when you think of the analogy of the, you know, this series we went through on BC-based calculation methods versus Fordoff and, and the amount of complexity there. And that story is a perfect example as to the complexities that are going on with a bullet. It's not just that simple lump of metal flying downrange and it's just gravity, time of flight, and wind. There's a lot of other stuff going on. Mm -hmm. and. And if you don't have those advanced calculation methods, you can't even begin to account for it. Exactly. Well, and it also yeah, kind of loosely proves like Ford off. Mm -hmm. you, it's, it's a free app. Go out there and use it or, or get the Kestrel with it. Right. Uh, because they have that kind of computational power that you had to, to at your fingertips to investigate this problem. That same horsepower is used in Ford off versus a ballistic uh, coefficient calculator. Yeah. Yeah. When you compare those two, it's pretty cool. Um, we, we just went through a big series or, or episode with miles where we, we kind of broke some, broke some ground on sample size stuff and how it's viewed in, in the commercial, you know, uh, small cow world or, or even in the industry too. You know, we talked it's about it, that, that the industry is really as a whole is still kind of based on like three and five shot groups, maybe yeah, tens and stuff maybe like that. Maybe 10. So uh, Jeff, I know you have a, a lot of opinions on sample size. I mean, what's your take on, on 
what you view is, you know, you pick up a gun magazine and you read an article on a review about a rifle or ammo and you see the data there. And, and what's your take on all of this? Yeah. So I, I, I am, I got my panties in a bunch over three shot extreme spread. I just, I just think that's a, if you want to site in with three shot extreme spread, have a party. If you're going to do load development, you got to take the bull by the horns and you got to be pretty serious about your, your analysis. Um, and you know, it used to be you'd plunk the holes in the target and you'd get the dial calipers out and you'd measure the X and the Y and you'd do the standard deviations, right? How much variance in horizontal and vertical do you have? And my opinion, you need to average those two numbers because if the, if the, if the distribution gets skewed, averaging is more, representative of the true the true dispersion of those of those bullets these days it's pretty easy to get that data uh i've been using on target software Mm -hmm. and basically it's a you know you snap a picture with your smartphone of the target you import it into the program you click on you click on um a couple of references on the target and it that does the scaling for you you click on the holes you tell it you're done, you, you click on the aim point, and it gives you all of the information that you need. And it's, it's not as fast as doing extreme spread, but you get a whole lot more out of it. If you just use extreme spread, you're leaving half the data on the table, and you're not making, you're not making use of it. Mm-hmm. What sense does that make? Yeah. What sense does that make? Load development, I'm shooting five-shot groups. I'm shooting five shot groups and I'm doing sigma X, sigma Y. Looking at each individual shot. Looking at each yeah. individual shot. Yep. That's, that's what I'm doing. And, and from a error standpoint, how much error is there in a, in a three shot group extreme spread metric versus a five shot group standard deviation metric? Well, the uncertainty goes from 60% with the three shot group down to 25% with the five-shot sigma. That's, that's a huge reduction. Mm-hmm. Just with two more shots. Just with two more shots and putting a little more effort into analyzing your target. Yep. Why, wouldn't you, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, you, you shot the five shots. Why would you look at just two of them? Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. good point. Yep. And the, the podcast that Jaden uh, is ta- referencing, it just launched today, Thursday the 15th. Um, just a few hours ago so we'll see what kind of feedback we get but uh Jaden, uh jacob miles the lab as a whole they they've been doing sample size testings of 30 50 and 100 and adjusting charge weight you know miles has done 50 shots and then move the charge weight 50 shots move the charge weight and he did that with seating depth as well Mm -hmm. and the the data that that we were receiving just opened our eyes like nobody's business it's like you think you see this trend but you don't see anything what you're seeing is noisy data and by shot 30 everything dampens out and and that's that's kind of the 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 dirty little secret i mean it takes a lot of shots to have statistical confidence in what you're doing and you know i i i I converse all the time with guys you know i oh yeah i I do my load development and uh, you know t- I do a I do a, a ladder test and I, I 
I, I look at where the velocity doesn't change much and that's where I pick my, my load and, and you know, that, that's all nonsense. That's my opinion. That's all nonsense. The rig, the big problem with that is the fact that there is so much variation shot to shot to shot in engraving force that you, you using that ladder test and picking that, uh, we know one shot for each charge weight, picking, picking a, load based on that is a waste of time thoroughly thoroughly meaningless in my opinion um yeah well and, and one of the to speak to that uh in the big sample size testing that that miles and Jaden and the, the lab crew has done uh they see that with with any given charge weight the extreme spread standard deviation of the velocity spread is almost always virtually the same regardless of charge weight um, and so if you're picking one even on a 50 shot sample and you record five of them it means nothing because the extreme spread is likely not the same but quite similar all the way across the charge weight spectrum right yeah. a little, about a year ago you sent me all that data mm -hmm. and i had a look at it and my first my, my first impression were mm, there's not much to pick from here and then i dug into it a little more deeply and, and, it, and it, it took me a long time thinking about it to say, okay, let's go look at this. Let's go look at that. Well, by the time I got done with it, I did pick a charge weight that was kind of on the lower end of the charges tested mm -hmm. that resulted in low muzzle velocity variability as well as small dispersion and small dispersion variability. So those things kind of, kind of go hand in hand, um, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you shoot small groups with, with high muscle velocity variability? Maybe. Depends on the range, I suppose. A short range, yeah. Maybe. But, you know, if you're going to go out past, let's pick a number, 600 yards, you, you better have good, tight, velocity variability otherwise you're you're gonna be hating you're hating life man you're just you're you missing targets like the rest of us you, you won't you won't <laughs> like it very much yeah. so i want to i want to ask you what your acceptable level of of accuracy and precision is you know that's you know in the precision rifle game you talked about the ocw test and people doing load development with these small sample sizes and they they say they have a quarter minute gun or a half minute gun and as miles and the crew is documented with this large sample size if your if your rifle system averages half a minute at 100 yards it could shoot groups as small as about a quarter minute and as big as like 0 0.8 0 0.9 minutes if it averages a half a minute on this on a big sample size so for you when you're working up something it sounds like you're a recreational shooter what's acceptable for you i'm 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 most of what i do is for hunting okay okay and so my my needs and my bullet selections are a little bit different than than the guys who are doing you know the uh, long range long range thing. By by the way, um, one time I visited here, I think it was in 2014. Joe Thielen had a pre production Ruger Precision rifle. Mm, yeah, he did. And six five Creedmoor. And yeah. yeah, and and he let me shoot that, and you know we started at 500 and kind of worked our way up to to a thousand you know shooting the 10 inch gongs and like out to uh, out to 900 I, I hit everything first time like wow this is this is amazing this is amazing um 
yeah my so my standard is you know if, if i can put five shots into an inch i'm happy i'm using i'm using you know kind of uh off the shelf um I won't say bargain basement, but kind of off-the-shelf non-custom rifles. I have one rifle right now that's in the shop. I'm having a new barrel put on it. It's got a new, uh, I actually went through the hoops to get a new receiver, da-da-da-da-da. I don't have the rifle yet. I'm going to get it back in the spring, and I can't wait to shoot it. What's that one chambered in? In 30-06. Beautiful, classic. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, looking forward to looking forward to sending bullets downrange with that one. You know, I've got I've got some uh, some rifles with me. I'm going on a hog hunt in February. All right. In uh, in Texas with some guys in Colorado, and uh, 300 Win Mag. Cool. That's what I got. Can't yeah. go wrong. That's yeah. a big bullet and a tough animal. Bring enough gun, I hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you can definitely go wrong in the other direction. You know, under under uh, shooting a pig is no much is not much fun. Um, but yeah, they're tough for sure. The armor on the the sides of those things oh, yeah. is insane. And there's nothing funner than dropping pigs. Yeah, God, that's that's you, a blast. Will you guys get to use thermal night vision and stuff, or do you know? Or? I I I do not know. You know, basically, it's my first time doing this, and okay. uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Have you used that stuff before? the The rifle I have only done load development on. I have not shot anything with it. I bought it from. Uh, from a friend from church who was getting on in years and he and his wife were getting rid of things. And I was like, I'd like that. Yeah. <laughs> Give that rifle some new life. Yeah. yeah. So he, he had bought, he had bought that in a, in Alaska when he was a young man and he killed caribou with it and, and, uh, came with a, a bunch of reloads that I didn't know anything about. So I promptly disassembled them and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I still have the bullets. Don't know what I'm going to going to do with them. You know, still got the powder. Don't want to do with it. <laughs> Put it in the garden, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably what's gonna where it's gonna end up. So, um, but but um, I've got I've got some lows worked up, and I'm 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 pretty happy with it. So so let me ask you guys some questions. Okay. Would you say that it's easier to develop a robust load? with a lead core copper jacket bullet or is it easier to do it with a monolithic copper i would say on average and when i say that i mean the average barrel Mm -hmm. and maybe average cartridge and average propellant right all those components being average it's easier with a cup and core bullet so a copper jacketed lead core bullet now i've seen circumstances actually hunting season this year for one of the first times, I had a monolithic style bullet, a CX, outshoot the cup and core bullets that I tried. Now I, you know, that's one barrel with mm-hmm. one powder, right? I didn't go right. changing stuff around, right? Um, and and we have seen that. We've seen the the did, biggest. Did, did you do a direct drop in for the or just bullet swap? Yes. You yeah. Did. Charge okay. rate was fixed. Okay. Yep. And both bullets were around the same grain weight. Yeah. Within within its class. Sure. Um. Yeah. So. I would say more often than not, I see a cup and core bullet shoot easier. I'd say when we make bullets too. Yeah, um, that's but, what I was gonna. I was gonna second that. But that statement is a dis- is not a distinguishment of you know extremes, right? Yeah, it's not like you set a bullet press up with a cup and core bullet and you turn it on and it spits out half minute bullets. And if you do the same thing with a monolithic style, it spits out four minute bullets. That's not true. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, right. But yeah, I d- would. I would say. I agree with that 100%. In my experience, 
the lead core bullets have been easier to get to shoot really well than a monolithic bullet. But there are some caveats, and, and one example would be the 7mm 160 grain CX. Uh, just here recently, I don't know if that's the bullet you were referencing. It was, yeah. But in the 7PRC, we made a bullet specifically for the uh, 7PRC. Uh, it's 160 grain. It's got a very similar shape to our 180 grain ELD match, mm -hmm. uh, which is made of monolithic material. And that first lot of bullets that we manufactured from start to finish and everywhere in the middle, that particular lot of bullets just drove brass tacks. So what I was going to say was, in my experience, yeah, the lead core bullets have been easier. But I think from the projectile standpoint, when we manufacture them, a lot of our lead core bullets have a higher accuracy standard before we will qualify a run than a monolithic bullet does. So if you yeah. look at our ELDX, our ELD match, our ATIP bullets, those have a significantly better or tighter accuracy standard than a hunting bullet like an SST or an interbond mm -hmm. or an interlock or a CX, our monolithic bullet. So just because we see that, I don't know if it's necessarily cause and effect saying that the lead core bullets are, in yeah. fact, easier. It just could be the bullets that we so, are using. So one of the things that happens when you pull the trigger on a cartridge is the pressure comes up, and that makes the bore grow in diameter. How much? It's not a lot. It's half a thou, maybe, on a 30 cal bore at 60,000 PSI in a barrel OD of an inch. Most of them are a bit bigger than that, so... You'd, you'd expect that, that, that deflection to back off just a little bit. Well, bullets shoot like they've got about two ten-thousandths of an inch clearance at the muzzle. So how does it get better as it goes down the barrel? Would be my question. And what happens, I think, is the, the lead inside the jacket gets smashed from the acceleration and pushed from the pressure and it causes it to expand on the diameter and that's what keeps those inbore angles small which helps you shoot small All groups okay so the lead core copper jacket bullets i think i hate to word, use the word inherent mm -hmm. but that's really the behavior the structural behavior of those bullets is such that I would expect them to shoot smaller groups in a wider range of barrels mm -hmm. than I would a monolithic. That's me. Are monolithics horrible? No. They're, terminal effects-wise, how do you beat them? They're, they're, they don't. They're, in, they're incredible. They're just incredible. Um, yeah, so if you're, if, you're, if you're shooting long range at paper, Lead bullets the way to go. Lead yeah. core bullets the way to go. I think that's an important important point that you just made when you said on the average over a wide variety of barrels. So from all the different barrels, all the different guns, and then the the manufacturing life of the bullet. Because you know we're not making. Let's say we make a run of a quarter of a million bullets. Well, that doesn't take us very long. And then you do another run, and another run, another run, and another run of all the bullets that we make. On the average of the entire bullet scheme or spectrum and all the gun spectrum, a lead core bullet in a given barrel. It's will, more forgiving. Yeah. More forgiving. It's, more, it's more robust. Okay. Yeah. Good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. That, I think, I mean, it seems to make sense in my head. I don't sure. can't support it in any way, but it does make sense that yeah. it would opt Yeah. So, so, you know, kind of measuring that, that's, that's, a, tough, that's a tough thing to do. Yeah. You know, like, how do you, I mean, even if you're using flash x-ray to look through the barrel, 
How do you measure half a thou on a flash x-ray? I don't know how you do it. Yeah, that's tough. So if I could figure out a way to shrink myself down, uh, honey, I shrunk the kid style. Yeah. And be able to sit right there next to the throat of the chamber and watch that bullet go by, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. No, you I'd, wouldn't. I'd, no, you wouldn't. Well, no, <laughs> theoretically, right? You'd have I'd, this. I, get to, I would get to finally see something that I've wanted to see for a very long you'd time. You'd have all these <laughs> propellant grains whacking you yeah. in the head. Yeah, yeah. I, I might need a little bit of protection from heat and pressure, <laughs> but uh, yeah, boy, I'd sure like to be well, able if to, you got, to see if that. Well, if you were holding a six-inch set of dial calipers as you got shrunk down, maybe the large six inches would be like a thousandths of an inch right, and then, yeah. you know, you'd be able to measure things yeah past a half really a figure some stuff out yeah. <laughs> right. yeah so so one of the things that that um has surprised me i guess of lately is um the notion that there's an optimum powder for a given cartridge like is it and i know there's an interaction between the powder and the primer and plus other things in the in the in the in the chain, if you will. Um, so, so if there were no resistance pressure on the bullet, the powder that you'd pick w- w- in terms of the least amount of velocity change for a given charge weight change, the powder that you would pick would be the slowest powder available. Right? Right. But since there is resistance pressure some of these slower powders behave like they have higher relative quickness for that particular application so how might you know i i started looking at that I'm like how the heck does that happen i think i know why it's back to the 155 stickers i think what happens is the bullet starts moving down the barrel and it gets crammed into the forcing cone and starts to engrave and that slows the bullet down and then that causes the rate of volume generation behind the bullet to decrease and that causes the pressure to spike Mm -hmm. okay so when you go to a load a loading manual i always pick I always pick the powder when I when it when I have powder available. Yeah. That's a whole nother problem. No kidding. Uh-huh. I always pick I always pick the powder that gives me the least sensitivity in terms of changing the velocity for a given amount of powder. I want the lowest velocity change for the powder charge difference between min and max. That's what I that's the that's the way I do load development. That's mm-hmm. that's my procedure. So to to put it another way, what you're doing is you're taking the difference in your, let's pick two charge weights. You take the difference in the velocity that those two produce and then the difference in the charge weights and you do that for all the powders That's and you right. divide it out and you pick that, what you would be the- least sensitive. The Would it be the highest number? The lowest number. Lowest number. Lowest yeah. number. Yeah. Here's a question for you. Do you consider uh, single-based or double-based or extruded or ball propellants in that, uh, in your experience? You can you use those as uh, considerations? Um, yeah, I think I think it kind of pretty much depends on what I'm going to be using the ammunition for, um, and I I don't have any bias, any particular bias either way. Um, I I do I do the let's look at the slopes, mm-hmm. and I'll I'll pick the one that gives me the the least sensitivity. Okay, and you know for the 
after a, a batch that just loaded up 30-06, um, 178 grain cup and core bullet, I, I picked I picked uh, a ball powder. Okay. Like, okay. And I trickled them, you know, so I've got not exactly, but almost exactly the same powder weight for every cartridge. Um, I do it, would do it with uh, extruded powders. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have any particular biases. So well, I, do- I do, and I was hoping you'd have some insight, and I don't have the, the background or, uh, I mean, I worked in the lab for a little bit, but I don't have any supporting evidence other than the anecdotal stuff that I've seen. When I'm looking for accuracy, extruded powder, no questions asked. And I don't know, I've seen that duplicated in my, again, anecdotal field results over and over and over again, hmm. uh, doing some of the low development when we have a new cartridge or when uh, we're going to have a new ammo skew. So you, you know, you, you work the loads up, whatever, and you try to get a certain amount of velocity within the given pressure. And you also have an accuracy standard. Yep. If accuracy is, is paramount, like on our precision hunter uh, ammo, for example, extruded powder was it, it, the no brainer. Uh, Jaden can maybe speak to that. I was hoping you might have. Some I, yeah, I, there. I, well, I got some thoughts, but let's 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 hear what Jaden has to yeah. say first. Yeah, I'd say those those trends definitely exist, and especially from a historical context, um, there's there that technology is always changing, right? In the same way Propellant that technology, that every yeah, in the same way that we're creating new projectiles or or uh, cartridge designs and releasing them, you know, that's happening on the propellant side as well. But usually, it doesn't make as big of a splash, right? You know, a, a new bullet or a new cartridge makes a pretty big splash in, in the shooting community. Um, but you do see new propellants coming out. And, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, you've seen some new ones, um, like from Hodgton, the, the Stayball 6.5. I mean, traditionally, the, the ball powders were viewed as being more temperature sensitive, right? Mm-hmm. They would change right. more when it was cold out or hot out. Your velocity would change more. Um, so that's that realm used to definitely be owned by the, the high-class extruded powders. I would say that some of the ball powder technology... Uh, it seems to be starting to target those areas traditionally held by the, the legacy extruded powders, not to take away from those. They're still, I mean, boy, they're tough to beat. You yeah. know, they've, they've been that way for a very long time. I mean, that's a whole interesting realm itself. Probably something that, that you've had experience with is, is how long some of those powders have been around. Some of those powders that came out of DuPont, you know, not long after the turn of the century and they're still around today, you know, yeah. 4831. Yeah, a lot of those old IMR series powders. Yeah, yeah, thirty thirty one. Yeah, yeah, they've been around forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of the um, group size variability is is likely tied to what we could, would call action time variability. Is the time between primer strike and bullet exit consistent shot to shot to shot? Mm-hmm. Is the pressure does the pressure rise look consistent? All of that, all of that, is tied up in how what size group you're going to shoot. Making the powder burn out before it exits the tube—that's a big deal. You know, you don't want to. I, I heard you talk to somebody once upon a time about showering the back end of the bullet with a hail a hail of ejecta un, 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 unburned yeah. powder, and and you're absolutely right. You know. Where does it hit last? What 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 effect does that have? That's absolutely uh, a, a player. Um, is the flame spread through a bunch of spheres 
more consistent or through a bunch of you know right circular cylinders with a hole through the middle or is that more consistent I don't know the answer to that. I okay. wish I did. Yeah. I wish I did. You know, one of, I mean, with the pressure measurement equipment that you folks have, there is lots of information to be learned. The problem arises in, you know, if you, if you had a transducer at the mid case and at the case mouth, could you measure, say, pressure waves in the case? Pressure waves are, are, uh, a very very bad thing. They they um, in in large in tank ammunition they've been shown to cause breech blows. So what happens is uh, uh, ignition shock runs through the propellant bed, hits the hits the projectile, bounces off, and now but when it gets back it it gets amplified. And instead of you know seventy thousand psi, it's a hundred and twenty thousand and outgoes yeah yeah and it's it never ends well for the tank crew so that's something you want to avoid um they they take great pains to avoid that we have the same problem in in small cal not so much not so much yeah. um the the new propelling charges for artillery they're what they call modular each each prop charge is made out of combustible case material it's basically, uh, you can think of cardboard, but with nitrocellulose in it. So it burns up when the, when the powder charge burns. It's got very strategically placed ignition components and strategically placed com uh, propellant components. And you can just stack them up. And if you, need, if you need a zone two, you load in two increments. If you need a zone three, you load in three. You need five, you put in five. It, it's, it's actually um, a very um, interesting, intriguing approach to changing the velocity for artillery. Sounds pretty, yeah. That's So we do, we, we're, not, we're, not, we're not there in small count. Yeah, not yet anyway. <laughs> get to work, Jaden. Yeah, I'm, I'm on it, okay? <laughs> yeah. I'm on it. Let Jeff retire. You need to take over and get, <laughs> yeah, get on it. You mentioned the word inherent a little bit ago. With, and, uh, with I, a cringe. I, I, oh, I, I hate that you word. You bit your tongue just a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, what do you got to say about inherent? Um, okay, let's talk inherent. Um, lots of people say, oh, that cartridge is inherently accurate. And I'm... <sighs> if you're viewing from 30,000 feet, inherent might be a word you'd use. But in my experience... Every single interface parameter and some, some parameters unique to the cartridge case, some unique to the propellant, some unique to the barrel, all influence the size groups that you shoot. And so, I mean, you guys know from, from 6.5 development, 6.5 Creedmoor, you know, you got to keep, you got to keep the throat in the barrel tight to keep control of the bullet. Does that make it inherently accurate, or did you make a decision? We designed it that way. There you go. Right. There you go. So, you know, low variability in bullet mass. Is that important? Depends on what you're doing. You know, um, low variability in charge weight? I think everybody's on board with that. Uh, low variability in cartridge case internal volume? 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, that's going to affect the peak pressure that's developed and the, the resulting muzzle velocity. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm in one of, the, one of the slides in the classes I used to give says there's no such thing as inherent accuracy. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm still on board with that. I, sure. I, I um, is it more robust? Absolutely, and it and it's more robust because of the engineering decisions we've made with regard to the barrel, to the bullet, to the powder, etc. Yeah. So maybe a better way to say it would be by nature of its design, or ah, there you go. Yeah. There you go. I told you I, I didn't work for marketing. But, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, yeah, trademark that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but design and manufacture. That's the, yeah, that's, that's the key there. Yeah, we, you got to yeah, do it yeah. right. You so, can design it right and screw up the manufacturer, and doesn't matter what you did with the design. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, this book, um, you know, it's helped me a lot. I still reference it to this day in my professional capacity. Seth, it's helped you a ton. Um, what do you hope people get out of it? Because I mean, so the the book is ammunition demystified, and and the subtitle is the non Bubba's guide to how ammo really works. Yeah. That's so a pretty direct statement. That is a pretty direct statement. And I've caught some flack for it in some circles and <laughs> I guess I don't care. They should check their ego. We talked about that before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so, so in, in my book, the Bubba is the guy, guy that just puts something in something in, 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 a, in a firearm and says, oh yeah, let's pull the trigger and see what happens. Uh, so the book, not, the book isn't for, for that guy. It is not for satisfied that. with that experience. There's nothing wrong with that experience. If yeah. that's how you want to do things, great. Get after but if it. you're the guy that wants to know more, you want to know why, is that who this, you wrote this it is, for? This is really the, this is really the how and the why and not the what. Okay. Less right. of the what. I mean, you know, you, you want a reloading recipe. There are be- much better books. I don't have any in there. Yeah, we've got you a know? great cookbook right here. Yep. Yeah. All and kinds th- of recipes. Yeah. This is there. this is more of a. This is how the cartridge cases work. This is how the propellants work. This is how the bullet works. Um, this is how the statistics work. Yeah. For you or against you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the the internal ballistics portions. That's something that nobody has a good handle on I, I say nobody as a general term because obviously that's not not the case but large-scale general consumer passionate shooter passionate reloader really into it studies this you know stuff up not his job he's just you know that's yeah, what he's yeah. passionate about yep there's not a, a good place to get a lot of good internal ballistics information yeah um that's modern you know I right mean, um yeah there's some stuff that i read years ago that was printed many years ago and that that helped give me a good frame of reference but um there's very very few resources on internal ballistics that i would call are from an expert and in-depth resources yeah like if you if you have the hornady reloading manual and you read those first hundred pages there's a great you know foundational knowledge block in those first hundred pages if you finish that up and you're like man i wish this would have kept going and got deeper that that's jeff's book yeah that's where you need to go yeah, yeah the, I mean, from a from an analogy perspective, you know, you can think of extruded powder as slices of a log, and you you put a hole through it, right, with a with an auger bit or something, and and the 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 bark on the outside is the deterrent layer, okay, and only only it's the deterrent layer is all of the exposed surfaces, 
And when you pull a trigger on a cartridge, the primer exhausts this hot, we can, we can call it um, particle-filled, flaming particle-filled gas into the propellant bed, and it strikes that, that deterrent layer and lights it off and gets it going. Um, ball powder is different. It's, you know, Willy Wonka's never-ending gobstopper. It's a layer upon layer upon layer of stuff, and that stuff can be a little bit more temperamental in terms of ignition, mm. okay? That might be part, part of the... Part, yeah, so, so you, might, you might do an experiment, you know? You, you get a cartridge, and you get similar loads of ball powder versus extruded powder, what happens to the velocity variability? You use, you know, 50 cartridges of the ball powder, 50 cartridges of the extruded powder. What's the velocity variability look like for those two? Is it the same? I don't know. I mean, you got to do the test. Yeah. got to do the test. Never ending. Yep. It's a good thing. Yeah. Good problem to have. Keeps me uh, occupied. Yeah. <laughs> Not like you don't have other stuff to do yeah. as well. <laughs> I've got. I could see little bits of gray coming into your beard. Yeah, yeah. The hair's still falling out of my head, but the beard, the beard is still strong. So I'm doing all right. All right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, talking about you know all of your mentors and then yeah. your attempt to to teach people. You want to go on any other detail about why you wrote the book or what what possessed you to do something crazy uh, like that? Uh, well, you know, I was I was. Um, this was ten years ago. I started it, and it was like, you know what? I'm I'm crowding I'm crowding retirement pretty hard here. I I better put some of this stuff down because once I leave, that information's going to turn into vaporware, and and nobody have access to it. So I I figured let's let's write it down and see where it goes. All of the feedback I've had so far has been very positive, and freely admit that most of the most of the people who've bought the books have been engineering types yep but you know uh, I think it's written at a at a level that that the dedicated hobbyists will be able to uh, to digest it and and take away good information from it yeah well it's definitely a service you you provided a service to the industry for sure and yeah not just the engineering types and those that us that are in the industry but the dedicated hobbyist as well it is um, yeah, we're glad you shared that information because it's, yeah, it's, again, it, it, I'm trying to think of another publication besides McCoy's book, but how old is that? Yeah, and that's that's heavily uh, concentrated on exterior ballistics. Yeah. I mean, the book is titled Modern Exterior Your Ballistics. Ballistics, yeah. yeah. Um, there's some other very, you know, heavily technical, yeah, Car- good ballistics. Car- Carlucci's book yep, is absolutely. a good one. I mean, very good one. Um, yeah. You know, and that, that. Could I have written one of those? Yeah, probably not. But Would you have wanted to write one of those? No. Yeah, exactly. No. You know, there's, there's, you know, there, there are a few equations in here. I've had some friends I've given the book to. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of equations in it. Like, mm, not if you've opened those other really books. Not, <laughs> there's really not a lot of equations. Um, but you know, it, it, uh, it was, it was the book I would have wanted when I was starting out. Perfect. That's a That's great a, way to put it. That is. You know, yep. uh, it, it's, I, I've learned all of this. I mean, things like gain twist rifling, that we could do a whole podcast on that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, it's very commonly used in medium caliber. Almost every gun that I can think of has a gain twist. It's not used in small cal. 
generally speaking. Why? It's harder to make. It's more expensive. Da 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 da. I mean, it's just they don't mm. doesn't. Large cal. Let's just say I did some work in large cal in the recent past, relatively recent past, and uh, it's been evaluated. But it's something that's way different than anybody else has ever built before. Cool. Technological advancement. I like Love that. It. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope so. Yeah. Let's hope so. Awesome. Well, Jeff, on for for everybody here at Hornady, for everybody that's going to read the book and for everybody that's benefited from your work that was kind of largely done behind a curtain, you know, obviously uh, a big thank you. Thank yeah. You. So the book, the book's available on uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Okay. And uh, it's also available at uh, an ebook format. So if you don't want a hard copy laying around the house, you I'd have that, say have get that both option. for yeah. the for the low cost of what an ebook is. Yeah. Have both because it's yeah, it will end up being a technical document if if you get the book and you digest it and it's like okay, that's a lot, but that was really good and I'm glad I had that. Having it in the digital format, yeah, it's easy to really search. Helpful. You know, like yeah, yeah. You, you go through it and say, hey, I want to go back and review that part about this. You can type that in. Yeah, there is there is a there is a cross reference in there, so it yeah. you know it's relatively easy to find things. Excellent. Even like things like when the angel pisses in the propellant. Oh yeah, yeah. Is that a, was that a war story? <laughs> I don't remember that part. That's that's in there. <laughs> and the hammered owl poop. That's yeah. one of my favorites too. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the battery won't die on that book, so that's nice. Yeah, yeah. That's that's awesome. And actually, this is anecdotal and tangential to our conversation, and I'll make this brief. But uh, I thought about the war stories, and I thought about this book within the last couple months that I was still working in ballistics before I left for marketing. Uh, I was doing some load development on something and we have these experimental propellants and typically if there's an X at the end of it, that means it's just slightly slower burning than the, than the name. So, you know, give it a name, 295, 295X would theoretically be slightly slower than 295. And in this instance, it's not always the case. And, uh, I didn't check and I tested it anyways and pressure went from you know, 58,000 to, yeah, transducer stopped at 105. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oops. Oh, Oops. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> yeah. That, so that was, that was one of my last uh-ohs, but I thought of those war stories in the, in the book because it's like, oh, you know what? I probably won't forget this because I don't know what the actual pressure was, but I've never touched off something that hot. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, uh, my last high pressure incident was probably a decade ago and it was one of those deals where I, I picked kind of a um, a mid end, a, a mid range load to start for a monolithic copper bullet, and you know, first two shots were kind of well, you know, it's a little hard to slide. as a Bruger number one, kind of hard to open the breech. You know, third shot opened the breech and cartridge popped out, and there was no primer. Oops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oops. So that was the end of that. Yeah. Yeah, luckily this my experience was in a test barrel, uh, so I was behind a yeah. glass door and pushed yeah. a button, but no harm, no foul. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, the, the, just yeah, I remember having that thought when I looked at the computer and went, Ugh, uh, better write that one down, not to do that again." <laughs> <laughs> Jaden, you got any last questions for Jeff while we got him and the record button still pushed? Uh, I don't think so. I I I hope that uh, you know Jeff coming on the podcast and especially writing that book. Thank you for doing it. Uh, getting that you know 
written in stone for, for those to come, you know, uh, as you're in your own words saying, you wish you had that book when you started, I was fortunate enough to have that book in some of my early days and it helped tremendously. And I hope that that benefits, um, you know, the listeners to this podcast, I hope they, they gain something, but, um, anybody in the future that, that gets that fire of ballistics in them, uh, I would recommend that. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Everybody out there in podcast land, hopefully you enjoyed this interview with, uh, you know, one of the living legends in ballistics. He's been instrumental in so many things that we've done and that have been done in the study of ballistics. Uh, we're grateful for everything he's done and to be friends with him. And uh, yeah, let us know your feedback. Hit us up at podcast at hornady.com or drop us a comment and we'll catch you on the next one.